from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Longshot is a production of McClatchy Studios and iHeartRadio. Previously on Return Man. Everybody got a little more cautious. What did you guys get more cautious about? White police officers. If that happens this day in time, that agency backs out. They're not involved in their own investigation. We did lab work for the investigating agency. We did not independently investigate. Wow. A lot of the stories say that he shot himself on the right ear. So why would you pull with Yeah. They say he committed suicide, but they say. Lancaster always considered itself a polite southern town. South Carolina where shaded moss-hung highways carry the traveler into another era. Quite intentionally, the boat wasn't rocked by anyone, regardless of race. So maybe it's not surprising that Lancaster authorities never made any sort of documentation about Jim's death public, even if it would have provided more answers. Historically, coroners would keep all their records in their home. But because of that, it's hard to know how much documentation ever really existed. Unfortunately, the year that you're looking for, along with many other years, is missing. Just okay. totally missing. And the silence didn't help anything. People from Wall Street made it into the NFL. We was as proud as we could be. Michael Bogan is the Bar Street graduate who's remained involved with the Lancaster community for the past half century. Bush Duncan was a idol, Jim Duncan. And, you know, I, I really don't think anyone really has accepted the 
department, Mr. Virgin, that he came into the police department, pulled an officer's gun from his holster, and shot himself in the head. So, for the moment, if we don't accept the official police account, what happened? Was it Lieutenant Russell Henson who shot Jim? If so, why? If Alice is right and Jim entered the police station voluntarily, what could have made a veteran officer shoot him dead moments after his arrival? Black people wanted to expose what happened with Jim Duncan. But again, Lancaster was a place that black folks stayed in place. They were hoping they could have stood behind the law. And when the law didn't show up, they were out in the cold. From the Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio, this is Return Man. I'm Brett McCormick, and this is Part 6, The Inquest. Five days after Jim's death, more than 300 people crowded into the Lancaster courthouse, just a few hundred feet from where Jim had died. Richard Chandler, Lancaster County's coroner, had called an inquest. Okay, so, yes, yeah, so this is actually, there's a fascinating history here, and, and um, okay. It's a quasi-judicial proceeding that's gone out of fashion in most of the country, but has a long history in South Carolina. The easiest way, I think, to explain it is to compare two modern things. Seth Stoughton is a professor at the University of South Carolina Law School. One of which is a medical examiner. The medical examiner does the autopsy, determines the cause of death. And in addition to the medical examiner, we have modern juries that determine culpability. There's a crime, there's not a crime. Someone was negligent, someone wasn't negligent. A coroner does kind of a combination of those two things, where the coroner will look not just at the physical autopsy, but also the circumstances surrounding the death and would have said at the time and even today in some circumstances, here is the cause of death and my inquest as coroner suggests that the officers failed to take proper steps in this way. By definition, a coroner's inquest exists in order to establish the manner in which someone died. By natural causes, homicide, suicide, accidental death, or undetermined. Witnesses testify under oath during an inquest, and at the end, a small jury reaches a verdict on what happened. But that formal pronouncement doesn't directly affect anyone's rights, or preclude a wrongful death civil suit, or prevent someone from being charged with a crime after the fact. Inquests have largely gone out of style because their findings don't actually result in any legal sanctions against anyone. Criminal and civil courts cover many of the same bases, with real penalties involved. By modern standards, it was this kind of weird combination of medical examination, including autopsy, and also a determination of whether the death was morally justified. If inquests are a bit archaic, the venue where this one was held has quite a history too. Lancaster's courthouse was built in 1828, 15 years after the last American witch trial was held at the same site. In 1861, 165 slaves were sold at that courthouse, and four years later, 
General William Sherman's Union troops burned it to the ground. That final episode might have inspired the 30-foot-tall Confederate monument standing outside the rebuilt structure. It was courtroom capacity at that particular time, whatever the capacity was. That's, 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 that's what we're here. And we had people on the outside, in the streets and everything. Overflow. Overflow, right, yeah. right. Floyd White was one of Jim's high school coaches, and he attended the inquest. He told us the seated courtroom crowd was mostly black, surrounded by white police officers standing along three walls. Butch was our hero. Yeah. yeah. He was our hero, so we, we were angry. Right. We were angry. Richard Chandler, who spent his days running an auto body repair shop, later told reporters he almost didn't call the inquest at all. But he did, because of a growing public outcry over Jim's death. He had me to come back. Right. So, you know, I went back. Chandler handpicked the six-person jury, or inquest panel. It consisted of five whites and Billy Ray Crawford, Chandler's one black employee at the repair shop. Pretty conspicuously, Billy Ray was also the only member of the panel named by local newspapers. I had read that you were the only black guy on the inquest panel, so I just wondered if you had volunteered or if they had volunteered you for you. Oh, they called me. I mean, he called and he wanted me to be there. He wanted some black owner since it was black. Feeling anxious about the police and about interacting with Jim's family, Jim's widow, Alice, did not attend the inquest. But his mom did, and Ellery brought representation. An out-of-town 20-something lawyer named Christopher Coates, who was so fresh out of law school, he hadn't even passed the South Carolina bar yet. The family had told me they had tried to get lawyers in Lancaster to represent them, and no one would. Coates is in his 70s now. He declined to be part of this podcast, but he told me that at the time, he worked for Thomas Broadwater, a prominent lawyer in Columbia. Do you remember any kind of sense of like maybe, you know, because of the racial implications, it was kind of a, a very hot case to touch? Coates said yes. For that kind of case, in that kind of place, it made sense that Jim's family went to Columbia for a lawyer. And Coates said he was sent to Lancaster because Broadwater just wanted someone present at the inquest. At the proceeding, the inquest panel heard just 41 minutes of testimony from seven total witnesses. All worked for or with local law enforcement and all supported the account from Lancaster police that Jim died by suicide. Five of them were from the Lancaster Police Department, including Lieutenant Russell Henson and dispatcher George Lloyd. There's a lot of, uh, well, dispute about the story. He declined to appear in this podcast. We spoke briefly by phone at his home outside Lancaster. Did you ever hear like people that didn't agree that it went down the way you guys said it did? What would be your answer to that? He told me, quote, All I can say is what I seen and what I heard. If they didn't like it, that was up to them. The sixth witness at the inquest was a doctor who worked with local law enforcement and who briefly examined Jem's body. The seventh witness was an agent from SLED, the South Carolina State Law Enforcement Division. The agent had delivered Henson's gun to SLED's crime lab, and he testified to something else. The SLED agent claimed the snap-down strap on the personal gun holster Henson wore the day of Jim's death was never unfastened in the moment before the shooting. It's not clear how he knew that. The agent seemed to be supporting the police account that Jim had acted suddenly and that there was no premeditation on Henson's part before the encounter. But jurors had to take the authority's word for it, 
that Jim could have yanked Henson's gun from his holster without ever unfastening it. I remember I was sitting by the right along here somewhere there, pew, you know, right along here. I remember. It's like I'm looking at you, I remember. I recently sat down with Floyd White in that same courthouse. Your, your thoughts, they're going to be all white because we didn't have any black officers in. Right. And it was just it's like blackness in here. So white officers, but like black crowd? Right. Right. And outside, same way. How, like, tense was it? Well, it wasn't, say, tense. Nobody saying anything. You could hear some, like a moment, but not enough to be disruptive, you know. Right. No one from Jim's side was allowed to speak at the inquest. No statements, no cross-examinations. Some people had told me that they felt like the inquest could, you know, provide some measure of relief for them. A lawyer could stand up in a way that they, as black people, could not. Coates remembered many of Lancaster's black residents hoped he would play a larger role there. But inquests are not legal hearings, and there's no standard procedure to be followed. So that seems to me like the misunderstanding of what was going to happen at that inquest. Like, it it was going to be some kind of hearing, you would be able to speak, the family would be able to speak, when in reality, that was not the case at all. Coates told me, quote, A coroner's inquest would not be the forum you would want to litigate a case like this in. It was my understanding, and I think Mr. Broadwater's understanding, that Duncan's family would be looking to file a federal lawsuit in which there would have been an allegation of a wrongful death, and the defendants would be members of the Lancaster Police Department. But given the way Chandler ran his inquest, the panel that day in Lancaster was left with two options. Either law enforcement eyewitnesses were telling the truth, and Duncan died by suicide, or they were lying under oath to cover up a killing. It took just 22 minutes of deliberation for the inquest panel to return its verdict. Chandler announced to the courthouse audience that Jim, quote, came to his death by a self-inflicted 38 caliber gunshot wound. The inquest is now complete. All that I remember about that was, they want to say he grabbed a police gun and shot himself, but I don't believe that shit. Billy Ray Crawford couldn't recall the exact panel vote, but he did remember most of the panelists' thinking. Everybody thought you did it yourself, so hey, you know, it won't be no big deal if you kill yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you didn't really think that he did that, though. Well, I, I, that's what they said. All I knew about what they said. Right. I wasn't there. Right. Do you remember, like, uh, they say, you know, he died by suicide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Self-inflicted wound, what you call it. Floyd White said the inquest did nothing to resolve the community's confusion and anger. Did people stand up then? Nobody said, you know. And sometimes, nobody can be identified by what the same way, roll out there. So they kind of expressed their displeasure, but not really fully say it. They weren't afraid. They didn't know what to say. You don't know what to say about what. You ever been in a situation like that? We'll be back in a moment. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
if you dare. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When you mention the South, most people think of cotton. In South Carolina, planters of those days would look with astonishment at King Cotton's empire today. Back then, Lancaster was at least 30 miles from any significant urban area. You'll see them wherever you drive in the textile belt. Such giant mills as this one in Lancaster. Largest cotton mill ever constructed under a single roof. Following Jim's death, racial tensions were clearly high. Richard Chandler's son, Rick is a lawyer in Lancaster today. He was a teenager when Jim died. Rick didn't respond to my request for an interview, but when Richard Chandler died in 2009, Rick told the Lancaster News that after the inquest into Jim's death, quote, sled in the sheriff's department watched our house. Rick told a story about relatives coming to visit and said that when they approached the house, sled agents rushed out of the woods around the Chandler home to confront them. Rick told the newspaper, quote, Dad was scared. I don't know if he was scared for himself or his family. It wasn't just his life that was in danger. There were two or three people they were worried about, too. But at the same time, 
Much of Lancaster's black population worried about the economic consequences of speaking out in the shadow of Springs Mill. The ability to bring up complaints and get some representation that you didn't find in these, in these company-dominated towns like Lancaster. Timothy Minchin is an expert in the history of racial integration in the textile industry of the American South. So even the police would probably be the brothers of mill workers. They would know people, and they would be a, you know, I don't know if you want to use the word conspiracy, but you know, like a sort of network to keep it quiet and to suppress what happened. He wasn't talking about Jim's case in particular, so much as acknowledging that even now, Lancaster is an isolated rural town. It felt especially so in 1972. Springs controlled thousands of jobs in town and had financial influence at the hospital, the bank, even the local newspaper. Around the time of Jim's death, the Springs CEO gave a speech that only reinforced the company's paternalistic control of the town. He said, quote, Revolution should be controlled by force, if necessary. A lot of times, you know, we're not like Birmingham. It's not like that here. But often there were tensions, and even if the violence isn't there on the surface, there's a lot of suppressed tension and you know, white control of the black community. And you have to dig deeper and find out what's going on. There seems to be no evidence that Jim died any other way than the manner in which Lancaster police described at the time. It's also true there's not much evidence of anything. White authorities in this rural southern town conducted what seems to have been a cursory investigation and a one-sided inquest. It's entirely possible those were not covering up any sort of wrongdoing. And yet, it's also true that if police were trying to cover up wrongdoing, this was the way to do it. I'm not trying to indict police officers because many of them are great. And you, you don't know how early CTE kicks in and the things that people will do. Upton Bell is the former Colt scout who first saw Jim's potential at Maryland State. Because of my experience in small towns all over the South, there are many secrets that none of us will ever find out when it comes to race. We, this is a great mystery. It involves race, the mental state of the person, the police state at the time, and a town that was scared to death to say anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a gothic novel. If, if we didn't know this was a real person, I would say, wow, that's pretty interesting. The inquest ruling pretty clearly showed there was no appetite to investigate further, let alone consider criminal charges against anyone. A federal civil rights lawsuit could have been possible if Jim's family had pursued one. We couldn't get any help in every door you open, the door shut. Jim's brother Elroy and Elroy's wife Linda. And the attorney that we had, he just said that nobody would talk, period. And he was saying he didn't know what and whom, you know, made the people feel like they couldn't even address the issue. You know, if they were told that something would happen to them or their families or anything. But they just shut down. Just shut down. Not one person wanted to talk about it. In our conversations, Christopher Coates vaguely remembered trying to speak with a few of Jim's friends and relatives in Lancaster. But then the Broadwater law firm apparently ceased its involvement in the case. It's not clear why. Broadwater himself is now in a senior home in Columbia. He couldn't recall any details of Jim's case when I called him. Coates speculated that a lack of hard evidence, 
coupled with Jim's history of mental health treatment, would have made it a hard case to win. Whatever the reasons, after Broadwater backed out, no other firms took the case either. The family felt stuck and unsure of what to do next. Been like that ever since. Nobody's come forth to mention anything about the shooting or anything. And they knew they lived in a small, little, sleepy southern town. Racism was abundant, but it was just, you know, like right, right on there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and see, like police people know what to say to put fear into people. Elroy says that last part was one final factor in his own hesitation to pursue legal action. He told a reporter at the time and confirmed to me that after the inquest, he had a conversation with Chief Larry Lauer. According to Elroy, the chief told him, quote, I'd advise you not to pursue this further. One death is enough. We'll be back after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the Mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting Mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. 
but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The story was that my brother took a gun off of a police officer and shot himself in the head. As stunning as the official version of Jim's death might be, Is it possible? Anything's possible. Any other hypothesis seems equally unusual. Think of this scenario. A guy his age comes in, let's say he was mentally upset about whatever. Upton Bell was the Colts executive who helped draft Jim. Now this again, 1972, versus say, he's in the police station, he's really upset, he's screaming and yelling. His version projects at least a kind of rationality on the situation. And maybe your scenario, they tried to calm him down, and as a result, maybe he went for one of the guns or something like that. If he were white and screaming and yelling, would it have been a different situation? I just find it very hard to believe if you're going to commit suicide, would you walk in being black, walk into a, a white station and blow your brains out in front of everybody? Carla Deese, the current Lancaster coroner, wondered the same thing. It's very perplexing. And I'm not disputing either way. I'm, I'm just bouncing around things. A tussle could certainly end up in a headshot. But typically if a cop gets his gun back, they usually shoot center mass. Right. But this is where you have to look at everything on both sides. I want to say here, current South Carolina authorities were helpful with my research whenever they could be. And Deese was sincerely curious about trying to solve this puzzle. If you're in a tussle with somebody and you're in a decision-making moment that one of you has to go home tonight to your family, mm -hmm. you don't really care where you shoot. Right. And you can pretty much fit this anywhere you want. Right, right. It's the rest of the details you need yeah. that seem to be non-existent. Deese also offered a helpful note about confusion over the side of the entry wound on Jim's head. Where was his gunshot wound? One of the news stories said that he was shot behind the right ear. His wife told me that somebody at the funeral home told her left, which would be weird because he was right-handed. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I wouldn't get worked up about the left or the right unless you saw an autopsy report on that. Because you could have an entrance and an exit. That would look similar? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. As I spoke with dozens of people over the past three years. How was Christmas? Oh, great. Yeah, it was good. It was good. The lack of detail here was still illuminating in its own way. With an uncertain incident like Jim's death, what questions do we choose to ask? And what answers do we believe? Those things say a lot about all of us. One thing that helps conspiracy theories flourish is official action that seems kind of half-assed, not what it is that the event itself deserves. This is Mark Finster. He's a professor at the University of Florida and an expert on conspiracy theories. I am the author of Conspiracy Theories, Secrecy and Power in American Culture, and uh, The Transparency Fix, Secrets, Leaks, and Uncontrollable Government Information. For the moment, let's say the other possible narratives about Jim's death are hypotheses that a group of people took intentional steps 
to conceal dangerous actions. In short, we'll call them conspiracy theories. We have confirmation bias in the way in which we think, and we seek out pieces of information that fit into an existing scheme that we have in the way we understand the world. Conspiracy theories, because they're a particularly heightened way of viewing the world, work the same way. Carla Deese and Upton Bell could imagine a confrontation in which Lieutenant Henson acted, if not reasonably. Maybe they tried to calm him down. Maybe he went for one of the guns or something like that. At least understandably. If you're in a tussle with somebody and you're in a decision-making moment, mm-hmm. you don't really care where you shoot. Let's see All right. But Jim's brother, Elroy. You watched some football yesterday? Yeah, I watch football most of the time. <laughs> suspects a very different cause and effect. The detective, his gun shot Butch in the back of the head. Okay. But uh, Butch was fast enough, and at 26, he's probably as fast as he was going to ever be. Yeah. You know. And I'm saying that there's no way unless he was behind him and just pulled the trigger. I've seen no evidence that the 52-year-old lieutenant executed Jim that morning. But clearly for Elroy, and much of the black population in Lancaster, it seems plausible. The idea that whites thought that they were inferior wasn't a conspiracy theory. It's another effort on the part of the president to put into effect these damnable proposals under the guise of so-called civil rights. There are conspiracies in the world, and so having a theory about that conspiracy is not necessarily irrational. It might not even be wrong. Here's Finster. If you're growing up in the Jim Crow South and you're African-American, there is a conspiracy against you to try to you know, prevent your economic success, to try to prevent you from moving to particular neighborhoods, to try to prevent you from going to particular schools. So if you grew up in that era, then viewing the world through a lens like that is not necessarily paranoid. You're viewing the world in the way in which the world is treating you. None of the other theories that I heard about Jim's death seemed to reckon with his likely depression or the potential impacts of CTE or the possibility that he wanted to take his own life. But one scandalous theory came up time and time again, and it was something I could look into. I work at the uh, newspaper in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Was your dad uh, Russell Henson, the police officer from Lancaster? And on part seven of Return Man, Jim Duncan was dating Ray Henson's daughter, who is white. You didn't question a lot of those attitudes because it would be like questioning whether the sun was going to come up in the east in the morning or not. How we interact with people depends on our perception of their social status. Mr. Lauer, and is Brett McCormick. I talked to you on the phone like a month or two ago. Right? I'm Brett McCormick. Turn Man is a production of The Herald, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. It's produced by Matt Walsh, Kara Tabor, Kata Stevens, Rachel Wise, and Davin Coburn. The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Titone. For lots more on this story, go to heraldonline.com slash returnman. 
you have any additional information about Jim Duncan's life or death, email us at returnman at heraldonline.com. To continue supporting this kind of work, visit heraldonline.com slash podcasts and consider a digital subscription. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.